Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, editor of Espresso, our daily briefing app. Coming up on this week's show, could past predictions of global warming have been a little overheated? They found that the carbon budget, the remaining carbon budget, is three to four times larger than what had been expected starting from today. Also, robotic space exploration could soon become far cheaper. These craft can make it to the asteroid belt and back in about three years. And finally, are some anti-venoms more like snake oil than salvation? The critical thing here is venomics, this concept of understanding how venom varies by geography. But first up, at the Paris Climate Summit back in 2015, world leaders pledged to limit climate change. The idea being that by the year 2100, global temperature rises should be capped at well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels. That caused a lot of chatter about whether or not that goal was even plausible. A study this week has challenged some of the assumptions behind it. Our environment correspondent, Jan Petrovsky, joins me now to explain a bit. Jan, before we get into the study, let's sort of recap a couple of years have passed since that summit. Where, where do things stand at the moment? So even at the time of the Paris Agreement, many scientists were skeptical that, that 1.5 degrees could be achieved. And that, that was a sort of aspiration inscribed in the deal. So that the deal was like well below two degrees, kind of fluffy language, and ideally 1.5 degrees. That's right. It's all kind of hedging to begin with. Exactly. And, and the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees could be significant. When you look at forecast sea level rises, for instance, it could mean the difference between survival and submersion for low-lying islands in the Caribbean or Florida or, or coastal Texas. So there was um, a feeling back in 2015 that 1.5, if it is geophysically possible, it would be extremely difficult to achieve. So even well-meaning wonks feared that that meeting the 1.5 degree goal would require an economic transition so radical as to make it incompatible with democracy, in the words of one. And in the past two years, unfortunately, emissions have continued to be to be spewed out at a rate which has slowed, but is not entirely consistent with the meeting uh, the two degree target, let alone the 1.5 degree target. And that sort of general uh, that consensus or lack thereof was on the basis of lots of climate models. The paper out this week kind of takes a, a new a new look at those models or, or kind of reruns them in a different way. What have, what have they done? So the researchers uh, who published this paper in, in Nature Geoscience look at something called the carbon budget, the sum total of emissions which would limit temperature rise to a certain level. So it'll be different for 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees or 2.5 degrees. And this is calculated on the basis of computer modeling, of simulations of how carbon is churned through the atmosphere and through the Earth's system in general. So when you look at cumulative emissions until today, 
or strictly speaking until 2015, that comes to something like 2 trillion tons of carbon dioxide. And when you look at temperature rise of the man-made variety, because there are natural variations which are subtracted from this analysis, it comes to about 0.9 degrees. And that's our best available estimate of what has actually happened since the pre-industrial era. So we've basically only got 0.6 degrees to go. However, the climate models these researchers observed only put the 2 trillion ton mark as being reached in 2020. So five years later than their analysis considered. But at the same time, those same models suggested that at that level of emissions, temperature would be 0.3 degrees higher. So you might expect that with the amount of emissions that we have today, temperature should be 0.3 degrees higher, but it isn't. They therefore decided to try and redo the sums starting from today. Ah, so running the very same kind of calculation, but instead of all the way back to industrial revolution time, but counting as if we were to start today on the basis of what we know now. So I'll put it slightly differently. So the models precast, so they basically start forecasting from 1870 and work forwards until today and then forecast from today onwards. Now, doing that obviously presents a a bit of a problem because you're using a model which proved to be imperfect at best. But at least it's a model which the men are workings of are are relatively well known and, and well understood. And, you know, given that it was precasting over 150 years, the discrepancy, you could argue, is actually reasonable. So that's what that's what the researchers did. And and when they did redid these models in, in this way, they found that the carbon budget, the remaining carbon budget is three to four times larger than what had been expected starting from today. So in order to make sure that temperature rise from today stays below 0.6 degrees. That would get us to the 1.5. That would get us to the 1.5 above pre-industrial levels. We can emit three times to four times more carbon dioxide than was previously thought. And that is basically as much carbon dioxide as had been expected necessary to reach the two-degree goal. Now, we always try to be careful here and elsewhere in the in the economist to be circumspect about single papers that, you know, overturn widely acknowledged effects and so on. How does this how how is this going to land in the in, in the wider community? Well, it's it's already being poured over by a lot of, of other climate scientists. Again, some are, are a little bit dubious about rerunning the models, which, you know, uh, proved inaccurate in the first place and just taking a, a different starting point. And I'm sure that plenty of people will want to make sure that, that this is no mere accounting error in the recalculation of, of the budget. But the, the authors, they tried to make sure that this isn't a fluke by running a, a different set of models. And they arrived at a, at a comparable conclusion, uh, which suggested to them that this could be correct. However, they do stress that this is by no means a license to carry on dirty business as usual. Well, this was exactly my question. I mean, this is such a polarized area of research and indeed of sort of wider rhetoric and so on. Isn't isn't there much mischief making to be made with this? Oh, look, it's, you know, not only have the scientists got it wrong for all this time, but also we've got, even if they were right, we've got more time than we thought. You might expect some pronouncements of this variety. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that some people have already made them. But the researchers are at pains to stress that the 1.5 degree target is only reachable with extremely aggressive 
mitigation uh, mitigation measures. The upshot here then is it was just about impossible before and maybe if this is right, it's just about possible now. Pretty much. Thanks very much, Jan. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Earth's chances for survival, you can find Jan's piece in this week's issue of The Economist. Or better yet, subscribe. Head to subscriptions.economist.com. Next up... To infinity and beyond! Or not. Buzz Lightyear's dream of traveling to the outer realms of our universe are entirely unaffordable. Launching robotic spacecraft towards distant heavenly bodies makes for exciting science. But each mission costs millions, sometimes billions of dollars a pop. So if we want our automated explorers to live Buzz Lightyear's dream, how might we keep the prices down? Our science correspondent Anano Bhattacharya has been reporting on one nifty and relatively thrifty possibility, an e-sale. Hi, Anano. Hi, Jason. What, what is an e-sale? Well, the e-sale is an idea by a chap called Pekka Janhunen of the Finnish Meteorological Institute in Helsinki. Mm. And he put forward this idea over a decade ago. Essentially, it is a sail that harnesses the solar wind. And that's a, a stream of charged particles that come from the sun. And uh, you, you see them occasionally on Earth in the form of the northern lights. The sail itself is essentially four wires that are braided together and looped up uh, inside the craft before launch. Once the craft gets out into space, these four wires, which are sort of braided together into a long tether, are spooled out. And they can be all together be as long as sort of 20 kilometers from end to end. Uh, And this is just trailing behind the craft? And uh, this is sort of sticking out of the craft. The craft's rotating and the wire sort of spools all the way out. Now, as the craft is spinning, the uh, wire, the tether itself, also spins around. So it creates a sort of, it sweeps out a circle that creates a sort of virtual sail. This sail is kept at a positive potential. And basically, uh, any electrons that are in the wire are spewed out into space by an electron gun. And then as positively charged particles like protons that are in the solar wind approach the sail, they're deflected. And because, as we know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, uh, the deflection of the particles causes a corresponding force forward on the, on the craft. Okay, so this thing's sort of just sweeping out a big circle. It's uh, bouncing particles of the solar wind off, and that gives it propulsion. That's fine for getting out. How do I get this thing back? Well, you put it into a long elliptical orbit. The uh, craft itself has some autonomous uh, guidance on board and so can uh, skip from place to place in a, a limited way. Any data that it gathers is held on uh, flash chips. So the whole setup only weighs about five kilograms. And doesn't have to spend any energy sending data back. You just wait mm. for it to sort of bring back a payload of data. That's right. This thing that Dr. Jan Hunen has designed is fast. In fact, he thinks that these craft can make it to the asteroid belt and back in about three years. That's, that's fast. Okay, it's, it sounds clever and it's allegedly cheap. What, what does, does Dr. Jan Hunen imagine we can do with this technology? What he would like is a fleet of 50 such crafts, and because they're so light, they could all be launched together. Uh, once they're in space, he says they could visit 
uh, up to 300 asteroids, so about six or seven each. And whilst they're there, they could survey asteroids, take pictures of them, and use an onboard spectrometer to figure out what sort of mineral composition is on their surface. The idea being we might find stuff of value out there that maybe future generations might want to mine, for example. An almighty fact-finding mission. I don't know, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Jason. Next up, the slithering snakes known as saw-scaled vipers. When threatened, they rub their scales together, creating a sizzling sound before they attack. Bites from these snakes can cause fatal hemorrhaging. In fact, no other group of snakes causes more death. Even though antivenoms are widespread, a new study led by Brian Fry at the University of Queensland says they're ineffective. Matt Kaplan's been following the story. Hiya, Matt. Hey, Jason. How's it going? Not so bad. First of all, talk me through how antivenoms work in the first place. Yeah, so the basic premise is you take the venom from the snake and you inject it into a large animal like a horse, which is going to be able to fight off the venom all on its own without it suffering any serious injury. And in the process of doing that, the horse is going to produce antibodies, which you can harvest and then inject into a human being who's been bit by a snake. And those antibodies will function to neutralize the venom before it can do extensive damage. And whereas we used to have antivenoms that were really useful against just one species of snake, because a lot of people don't know what snake they're bitten by when they're bit and end up in the emergency room, the notion is to have an antivenom that's wide spectrum against all the snakes in an area and is combined with many antibodies from many different types of venoms. And uh, it, it mostly works. They mostly work sounds a bit ominous. In what way don't they work? The research stems from researchers noticing that with saw-scaled vipers, a lot of patients were being administered the antivenin for the snake that bit them and then were not getting better. In fact, a lot of fatalities were following. And that made Brian Fry and his, his associates wonder, well, wait a minute, just how effective are these antivenins if we were to test them in the lab? So they set up a pretty straightforward experiment. They, they milked venom from snakes uh, Saw-scale vipers in particular, found all over basically Asia, Southeast Asia, and Africa. And then they, they put them up against human plasma, and then they monitored how the plasma responded if the antivenin was presented or not. And they, they looked at the results. And, and the results were not good. A lot of these antivenins are listed as, as being useful against snakes that live in regions where the antivenin is sold and, and available on emergency shelves, but then when the antivenin was applied against the venom in the human plasma, it either didn't work at all or it just didn't work very well. And that explains why so many people were still dying even when being administered antivenom. Um, but it, it's a real problem. Why? why? Why does it vary so much? So a big part of the problem here is what we identify as the venom of a snake that is continuous. So... There is a species known as Echis carinatus that's found in both Pakistan and India. But when the researchers milked the venom from Echis carinatus in Pakistan and milked the venom from supposedly the same species of snake in India, the antivenoms work against the Pakistani Echis carinatus, but not against the Indian Echis carinatus. Well, it seems to, to kind of undo the work of finding these, these sort of broad spectrum antivenoms that you were describing. I mean, how to, how to fix this problem, unless you have to go around and milk every snake there is everywhere all the time? Yeah, the critical thing here is venomics, this concept of understanding how venom varies by geography rather than 
looking at which snakes are breeding with which other snakes, whether or not they function as a species, is actually largely irrelevant to this question. What really matters is whether or not the venom varies geographically. And then you got to milk those snakes and get the antibodies produced into the antivenom and make sure that you've got a comprehensive array of antibodies rather than just saying, okay, right, that's from species Echis carinatus. Yeah, okay, fine, it's also found in India, but we don't need that one because they're the same species. That kind of logic is going to get the antivenom companies into a lot of trouble. Okay, look, just, just one last question because the, the word is, is fairly evocative, at least in, in my mind. How do you go about milking a snake? You have to capture the snake. You have to hold it in a position such that it can't bite you, and then you actually have to put pressure on the venom glands so that venom comes out of the fang. Exactly how that all happens, I don't know, but that's the basic premise. Well, we learned a little bit about snake milking. We learned a new word, venomics, on Babbage. It's, it's been a success all around. Matt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Jason. Take care. And you. One final thing before you go. Please rate Babbage on whatever app you're using. It helps spread the word, and we'd really appreciate it. I'm Jason Palmer. Thanks for listening. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.